Morning, everyone. You know, one of the things that I've had to get used to in this current role is attending two services. Now, attending two services has a number of benefits. The greatest of those, of course, is being able to get to know the people from the second service and to be able to put some faces to some names. Um, but the other benefit that I've discovered is time to think. You see, when you hear, hear two services, you also hear the message twice. And I know that for some of you that would be just a little bit short of your definition of torture. But I have found that even in this, there are some unexpected benefits. You see, the first time around, your mind kind of moves with the ebb and flow of the message. But the second time around, at least for me, is when my mind is free to actually think about what's being said. Now, about six weeks ago, I was sitting through one of Pastor Glenn's messages for the second time, and he posed the question, what would happen if this church was just picked up and lifted out of the community, just gone like that? And in my mind's eye, I imagined one of those grabber hands, you know, that are in the vending machines that little kids love. And I imagined this grabber hand coming down and trying to yank out the church like a tree by its roots. And I began to ask myself, firstly, how easy would we be to pull out? And secondly, the heart of Pastor Glenn's question was, if we were gone and we didn't exist anymore, would anybody notice? Would it make any difference to anyone out there in the community? And the answer to both of these questions, I believe, depends on how well we have put down roots. And so while one message was preached, this one that you're about to hear today was conceived. So I guess you could say that what you're getting today is a responsive message of sorts. So this morning we're going to look at roots, essential not only for plant growth, but also for Christian growth and kingdom growth. And having had a background in botany before I became your pastor, this is a subject that I kind of feel qualified to talk about. Now, people who lived when the Bible was written, they had a strong affinity for the land. Their economies were strongly dominated by agriculture and they quite literally lived and died by the fortunes of the land. And so we see that much of the imagery that's used in the Bible is agricultural in its origins. And it relates to the agrarian lifestyle that these people lived and that they readily understood because they were dealing with it every day. How many references can you think of um, to something agricultural in the Bible? There's harvests, there's reaping, there's sowing, there's cultivation. There's threshing of grain, there's vineyards and fig trees, there's storing grain, there's weeds, there's shepherds and sheep, there's fruit, fields, ploughing and resting of the land. And there's probably lots of others that you can think about as well. But there's not many, or indeed any, that I can think of that relate to stock markets or currency exchange or interest rates 
or property development, some of the things that are so important to us. So as we read some of these passages, we kind of have to do it with our agricultural goggles on to see things as the people in those days to whom the passages were originally written would have seen and understood them. So today we're going to look at two passages, one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament, and we're going to do it with our agricultural goggles on. So we're going to start with the New Testament, and we're going to be reading from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So just to deal with a little bit of background before we get into it, Paul is writing here to what we believe to be mostly Gentile background believers in Colossae. Now Colossae um, lies in uh, the Lycus Valley, which is, it sort of runs here from Laodicea down through here, and Colossae's right in the middle of it, and it's the region that we know of as modern-day Turkey. Now, incidentally, if this map kind of looks a little bit vaguely familiar to you, it's because I've used one recently, very similar. And those of you who have good memories might recall that we talked about Paul's visits and work around here, setting up some of these churches. And then on his second visit, he had hoped to go through here and evangelise in this area, but the Spirit of God prevented him. And so he went up through here, through Galatia, up to Mycenae, somewhere up here. And then he wanted to travel into here, to Bithynia, to do some more church planting work. But again, he was prevented. He had the vision of the Macedonian man. And they ended up going through here to Philippi in Macedonia. Now, eventually, the gospel did reach this area that Paul had originally wanted and hoped to go church planting into. It happened in God's time and in God's way through a young man called Epaphras. Now Epaphras was from this city of Colossae and it's believed that he heard Paul's message during the time when Paul was in Ephesus. Paul spent about three years teaching in Ephesus and we believe that Epaphras made his way across there, heard Paul teaching, was discipled by Paul, and eventually went back to Colossae and established a church in his hometown. 
um, a little bit more background. Why was Paul writing to this church? Well, he wrote firstly to strengthen the faith and the conduct of the believers there. That's a common feature of most of Paul's letters. But he's also seeking to counter some of the beliefs and philosophies of the outside world that were threatening the Colossian church at that time. See, Colossae was once quite a large and very populous city in the area. Um, but by the time Paul was writing to it, it was relatively small in size compared to some of the bigger towns that had grown up around it, Laodicea being one and Hierapolis being the other. But in spite of its relatively small size, Colossae was still a very cosmopolitan city. It was on a trade route, and so it had people from all parts of the world passing through, and it was also situated pretty much where east meets west. And so it was a, an important meeting point, and it was a melting pot for many um, cultural and religious elements. Much like our modern cities today that are so full of people of all different kinds of cultures and bringing their own religions and traditions with them. And so this little letter, which is um, perhaps to the least important of all the churches that Paul wrote to, or of the, of the letters that have been retained for us in the Bible, this little letter has a message that is very relevant to so many of our cities today. Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, they're all cosmopolitan cities, melting pots for many cultures and religions. Now, unfortunately, Paul wasn't completely specific about exactly what these beliefs and philosophies were that were threatening the Colossian church. But what we can glean from parts of the text is that together, what, what they were teaching was that Christ alone was not sufficient, that other things were needed. And these things included um, circumcision, included adherence to some of the food laws that were part of the old Jewish ways, um, included attending festivals, um, there's parts in there about worship of angels and there's a lot of debate about whether the people were actually worshipping the angels or whether worship of angels means that they were participating in worship which they believed to be with the angels or like angels. Um, both can be justified from the text. They were also involved in activities which actually harmed their own bodies, so sort of self-abasement for, in the name of Christ. And these arguments were based partly on philosophy, partly on tradition from the past. They also flaunted secrecy and superiority and exclusivity um, of mystery. Mystery was a big part of what was tied up in all of this. And so we see mixed in there, there were elements of Jewish legalism, there were elements of Greek philosophy, um, there were elements of Oriental mysticism, and these were all put over a base of, of Christianity. So all put in the pot together and stirred around, 
And what sort of came out was neither Jewish, neither Greek, not mystic, and it certainly wasn't completely Christian either. None of this denied Christ. There was no outright denial of Christ going on, but he was denied his rightful position and relegated to just being part of the mix in the, in the melting pot. And how very like our own culture does that sound today? There's not a lot of outright denying of Christ. People are still happy to celebrate Christmas. They're still happy if you want to believe whatever you want to believe. But they want to bring in all this other stuff. No one's actually allowed to say that anything's wrong. It's all okay and we'll bring it all in and be part of, of this big mix. And so the influence of these beliefs and practices on the early church in Colossae actually threatened the truth of the gospel. And into this melting pot, Paul urges the all-sufficiency of Christ. That what Christ has done for us is sufficient for our salvation and none of these extras are needed. So Paul's solution for the Colossian church, challenged by these many competing philosophies of the world at that time, was for them to be rooted, up, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. And I think that advice is just as relevant for us today as it was to the Colossian church back then. Whilst we may not be allowing Jewish religious laws to impinge on our faith, and I haven't noticed any of you worshipping angels or believing that you're actually worshipping with angels or like angels. And thankfully, I haven't seen any of you deliberately harming or punishing yourselves in the name of Christ. There is plenty in this world that creeps into our churches and erodes our faith. You only have to visit your local market, particularly if you live out where I do in Eltham or go further out to Hurstbridge or St Andrews and you'll see the influence of mysticism today in the world. At those markets, it's treated as completely normal. There's people there waving Indian smoke ceremonies around. There's loads of crystal stalls, all this sort of stuff. But leaving all of that aside, there's pride, there's greed, there's the business-like way that our churches often compete with one another. There's our tendency to want our worship leaders to perform and entertain us um, and serve our needs. And there's the slow eroding of Christian values and as we seek to align our practices with what the world finds acceptable today. Paul's solution to all of these things is for us to be rooted and built up in Christ and strengthened in the faith. And it's this image of the roots going down deep and wide as the top part of the tree is built up that appealed to me when I reflected on Pastor Glenn's question. Because I believe the ease with which we as a church could be pulled out by an imaginary giant grabber hand or influenced by all of these competing beliefs and philosophies in society will depend on how well we've been rooted in Christ. And likewise, any impact on the community, i.e. would they miss us or would they even notice if we were gone, that depends upon our reach, how well we've been able to branch out 
into the community and that in turn depends on how well we've been rooted up in Christ. So there's plenty for us to reflect on in Paul's choice of analogy here. Now, having done a PhD in plant pathology where I specialised in root diseases, I feel like I'm qualified to tease out this analogy a little bit. So we're going to start with some basics, the key functions of roots. What purpose do they serve? Firstly, roots feed the plant. This is the first and the most basic function of a root. But contrary to what most people think, it is not a passive function. The roots don't sit in the soil and water just sucks in there somehow. This is a process that takes energy. So the elements that a tree needs are bound to soil particles. And for them to be freed up and taken into the root, the root must release a proton, which is a, a hydrogen ion. It's charged. And that knocks the element free from the particle it's bound to. Well, that's the kind of simple version. It's not quite as simple as that. It involves gradients and all that sort of thing. But that's the simple version. We'll go with that. Knocks the um, element off the soil particle. And none of that happens passively. It all requires energy that the tree has to produce by photosynthesis. And it's the same for us. Being rooted in Christ means that we draw our nourishment from him and that is not a passive process. You don't become a Christian and sit in church and absorb everything. It doesn't happen like that. You can't hope to grow as a Christian without expending some energy and doing that on a regular basis. And in our case, we need to develop a regular pattern of prayer and immersing ourselves in God's word. Now, the second key function of roots is that they act as an anchor. A strong root system will enable a plant to stand firm against everything that life may throw at it for many, many decades. Think of everything a tree could possibly endure in its lifetime while we're safely tucked away and protected inside our buildings. There's snow, there's hail, there's gale force winds, torrential downpours, floods, bushfires. A good, strong root system can anchor a plant and help it survive in even the harshest of environments. Think of the Colossian church and all that was coming in on them. Legalism, philosophy, tradition, mysticism. Strong roots help you stand firm. Think of a new Christian today, perhaps a teenager, and all that they might face in their lifetime as they stand for Christ. There might be humiliation at school. Perhaps there'll be difficulties at university or within their peer group that come from swimming against the flow, refusing to get drunk at parties, abstaining from sex until married, avoiding gossip, standing up for the underdog. Then there's all the challenges that come with work and family life and balancing time to keep God as priority one. For Christians, Paul argued, being rooted and built up in Christ was essential to survive and remain steadfast in the faith against all of these things that the world might throw against us. So some further observations about roots before we move on and talk about how we might encourage some healthy root growth. 
The roots of plants often go unseen. We see a beautiful tree like this and we marvel at it, but we forget that below the ground there exists a whole support system that's keeping that tree going. Did you know, for example, that you, if you were to dig out a single corn plant and cut up all the root pieces and line them up end to end, that root system would stretch for 150 metres just to support one single corn plant. And a corn is a grass. That's 150 metres of roots for one grass plant. Roots of plants go unseen and their praises are largely unsung until they're tested. Now, this is one of my favourite plants. It's Allioin huglii, or the, the purple native hibiscus. And I love this plant because it tolerates neglect, which I can happily give it in abundance. It's extremely drought tolerant, and it's covered in beautiful purple flowers for a very long flowering period, and purple happens to be one of my favourite colours. So just looking at this plant makes me really happy. And in fact, I've loved this plant so much that at one point I planted eight of them from that corner all the way down there because in my humble opinion, they're very beautiful. And they were beautiful for a short time. Today, only three of those original eight plants remain and only one of them is in a healthy state. The others look like this. Um, they have all succumbed to the fatal flaw that this plant has, and that is shallow roots. When storms come, this plant will be the first one in your garden to blow over, and nothing you try and do to save it will actually work in the long run. I've tried star pickets. I've made Pastor Bruce go out and put his shoulder under it while I try and prop them up. Some of them I've left, and pruned right back to nothing, hoping that they might just grow kind of on the side. But ultimately, for a plant in that state, it's only a matter of time. And the same is said for us. What lies below the surface is unseen, and its praises are unsung until we are tested. Once we start to get that Colossian creep of all these worldly things happening, when these things start to encroach on our faith, it's only then that we see how extensive that underground root system is and only then that shallow roots are exposed for what they really are. The New Living Translation says, let your roots go down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. And I can't help but think that Paul was speaking from experience when he penned that verse. A man who was overflowing with thankfulness, strong in the faith, even in the face of great persecution. Another fun fact about roots. For most plants, growth above the soil surface is directly proportional to the growth below it. Or... Bigger plants have bigger root systems. Don't need to be a botanical genius to figure that one. Of course they do. Did you know that the roots of the giant Californian redwood trees can occupy 15,000 
metres of subsoil. Or that the deepest root ever recorded is that of a wild fig tree, which was found at depths greater than 120 metres by some cavers in South Africa. Bigger plants need a bigger root system to feed their greater bulk above ground and to support their greater reach. And this same principle applies in construction. Bigger structures need bigger foundations. What can be seen above the soil surface is directly proportional to what is below it. Now, Gordon MacDonald wrote a book entitled Building Below the Waterline. And in it, he recounts a story from the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which joins Manhattan to Brooklyn. And it was built back in the 1800s. And he said, in June 1872, the chief engineer of the project wrote, to such of the general public as might imagine that no work has been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water, I should simply remark that the amount of masonry and concrete laid on that foundation during the past winter underwater is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the waterline. So that is all down there as well. McDonald states further that the Brooklyn Bridge remains a major transportation artery in New York City today, today because 135 years ago, the chief engineer and his construction team did their most patient and daring work where no one could see it, on the foundations of the tower below the waterline. This work, he explains, is called worship, it's called devotion, and it's called spiritual discipline, and it's done in the quiet where no one but God sees. So the ability of a tree or a bridge to extend its reach, greater canopy for the tree, longer span for the bridge, depends not so much on what's above, but on what's below the soil surface or below the waterline. And so it is for us as a church. If we want to extend our reach into the community, I believe it matters a lot less what we're doing on the surface, what programs we're running and what activities we're doing, and a lot more what's happening below the soil surface. It's that private worship, devotion, prayer, and spiritual discipline that's going on in the quiet in people's lives where no one but God sees that will enable us to be built up and strengthened in our faith and it is that which will enable us to ultimately put strong branches out into the community. Roots have an amazing capacity for growth. Under ideal conditions they can grow about a centimetre per day and we likewise have great capacity for spiritual growth under ideal conditions. Once we really decide to sink our roots into Christ and build upon him. Psalm 92 is one of my favourite psalms and it says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the cedar of Lebanon. How is this possible? The scripture tells us because they are planted in the house of the Lord and they will flourish in the courts of our God. So plant yourselves in the house of the Lord. Be attentive to worship, devotion, spiritual discipline, to those things which are done in the quiet where no one but God sees. And when we do this, we feed 
the spirit and we realise the enormous potential which there is within each one of us for spiritual growth, to flourish like the psalmist's palm tree. The strength of roots is immeasurable. If you have any large trees near your house, you will know this to be a fact. We have a very large ash tree in our front garden and I love this tree. I love to lie on my bed, which, because we've got a two-storey house, puts me about halfway up the tree, and to look out and observe the seasons in that tree. I love it when it's lush and green and casting a cool shade over the garden. I love it when the autumn leaves flutter down. I love it when it's in full flower and it just carpets everything with pollen. And I love it when the little helicopter seeds take off and patrol around the front garden. Bruce is not a fan of that tree, mainly because of what it's doing to our driveway, which is all cracked and lifting in multiple places. Roots, as you probably all be well aware, can do things which we are unable to do ourselves, and that is lifting and cracking huge chunks of concrete. Given enough time, roots will even find and exploit hairline cracks in even the biggest boulder and use it to break up a huge mass of stone. So why are roots so resolute? With all of this amazing strength and amazing capacity for growth, why is it that they're so resolute? And the answer is relatively simple. They're looking for water. They are single-minded in their pursuit. Well, at least they would be if they had a mind. Um, one morning I was loading kids in the car at home and I noticed a white, wet substance running across our driveway from one side to the other and it looked quite pretty. It was perhaps something that I would imagine maybe the manor in the desert to look like, so I went down the driveway and stood in the middle of it and wondered what it might be and I called out to Bruce who came down and much to my horror, he informed me that God had not delivered liquid manna to our driveway, but that I was in fact standing in, Walmer Clay will know, raw sewage. <laughs> and the pretty white bits that I thought looked like manna were actually a fine sludge of toilet paper rolling across our driveway. Worse still, it wasn't even our own sewerage, which somehow would have made it seem a little bit better and more palatable. I was standing in the sewerage from all the neighbours up the hill from us. A few days later, after wrangling with the water authorities as to whose responsibility a shared sewerage pipe might be, they turned up and diagnosed the problem as a pipe full of roots. They drilled out the roots and now we live presumably with horribly cracked pipes, leaking raw sewerage underground, awaiting the next blockage, which will result in another river of sewerage across the driveway, which the workman happily informed me will happen every three to five years. Mm -mm. You see, root growth is not a random process. Roots seek out water and nutrients, and when they find it, more and more and more roots are produced in that area to soak up the nourishment. The result being that the tree grows, and if they happen to have found nourishment in your sewerage pipes, you have big trouble. 
In the passage that we read from Colossians, Paul warns them to ensure that no one takes them captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. So much to distract. Instead, like the tree, we need to be single-minded in our pursuit of Christ and when we find him, to put out more and more and more roots to read, to pray, to study, to think, to worship, to learn and soak in all that spiritual nourishment that we can to be built up and strengthened in him. It is virtually impossible to survive without roots. It can be done, but it is virtually impossible. There are few plants that I'm aware of that can survive without roots. Those that do are either tiny, like this one here, Wafflia ariza, and must be completely immersed in their food source all of the time to survive, or they are parasites, completely dependent on other plants that do have a good root source to supply them with nourishment. So that's the dodders that you see here. And if that's not an apt description of Christians who fail to sink their roots into Christ, then I don't know what is. Without roots, they either remain tiny and are unable to survive unless they remain completely immersed in Christian surroundings or, like parasites, they must be constantly fed by and are completely dependent upon others who are well-rooted in Christ. Roots determine not only the health of individuals, they determine the health of communities. Consider a forest. Everything in it depends on the health of roots. Certainly the trees and the shrubs and the other plants, but also the insects, the mammals, the birds, the amphibians, all of them rely on healthy root growth. And if as a church we are to stand strong against the forces of this world, if we are to branch out and impact our community, we need to be rooted and built up in Christ. We need to take care of our roots and encourage healthy root growth. The health of the community both inside these four walls and outside of it depends on it. So how exactly do we do that? Let's take a look at the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah. So those who've got Bibles, we're in Jeremiah 4, chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. It's just a short passage. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Now, if my 17 years working with Victorian farmers taught me anything, it is that hard soil is unproductive soil. It is difficult to plant into, moisture does not penetrate into it, and its hardness inhibits root growth. In my past life, I spent many hours inside a tractor cabin, 
while the work of preparing the fallow soil was happening. I have observed that it is tedious, precise and time-consuming work. And that's exactly why I found it the best time to catch farmers if I wanted to speak to them. They were always glad of my company, because it's long, tedious work, and they were free from other distractions and unhurried. Often they would tell me when I rung, yep, I'm doing the groundwork Monday to Wednesday, come on one of those days and just find me. And so I'd turn up and stand at the end of the paddock and I'd see them off at the distance, and eventually they'd spot me and flash their lights, if they had working headlights, which many of them didn't, and if they didn't, they would open the door and lean out to let me know that they'd seen me, and then I'd wait the 10 minutes or so until they'd get to my end of the paddock. The door would swing open, and I'd jump in. And if I was lucky, there'd be a fold-down dicky seat that I could sit on, and if I wasn't, I'd have to perch on the wheel arch, which made for an uncomfortable ride and bruising on the back of the head as you went over all these bumps. It was slow, tedious and precise work, and that was with a tractor. The people to whom this was originally written obviously didn't have tractors. They would be doing it behind oxen or cattle. Even more slow, precise and tedious work. So the prophet Jeremiah urged the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem to break up their unploughed ground. Now, this was not a call for them to get busy behind a plough in their fields. It was a call for them to do to their hearts exactly as they were so familiar with doing to the soil, that patient, precise, time-consuming and sometimes tedious work of preparing it that it might be productive. To search into their own hearts, to break up any hardness, to seek out and remove the weeds and thorns that corrupt and choke and to prepare their hearts for the productivity that God intends and to get their hearts ready into a state to receive the mercy and grace, the sunshine and the rain, if you like, from God that will enable them to put down their roots, to grow and ultimately to be productive. In my years working with the farmers, I have observed that this work of preparing the ground cannot be hurried and there are no shortcuts to get from what you see on the screen here to what you see now. This incidentally is one of my many field sites that I used to have around the state. This takes consistent, patient, ongoing work year in and year out. Try and save time by doing it in less passes with the tractor than required and you'll end up with big clods that make planting difficult and that will ultimately cause any seedlings to bake in the hot sun. If the ground became particularly hard, not so much on this site, this was a very sandy soil, but on some of the more clay soils, if the ground became particularly hard, we would first have to cross-rip, going diagonally across the ground to bring up the new soil from underneath. And then we'd go back, bouncing over all these great big lumps, before doing a final one or two passes to get the beds that you see in this picture here. And it was during this deep cultivation that all sorts of things, but mostly rocks, were unearthed. And it never ceased to amaze me that ground that had been worked for 20 or 30 years could still bring forth rocks 
that had to be carried off the site lest they stayed there as a hidden danger. The work of maintaining productive soil that will enable plants to put down healthy roots and flourish is always ongoing. It never ceases because if it does, how quickly the ground hardens and the thorns and the weeds take over again. How much there is in these few short verses for us today. God's word is as active and as alive today as it was when it was given to the people of Judah. Plough up your unploughed ground. Break up the hardness of heart. Go down deep and unearth the sin like the rocks that remains hidden and carry it off the site. Pull out all that is corrupt like the thorns so that they can't choke out the word of God in your life and make you unproductive soil. The second part of God's word to Judah through Jeremiah is very similar to the word of the, to the Colossians through Paul. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your, your hearts. And this is a call for them not to boast or rest in that outward sign, their physical circumcision, which was a sign of the, their covenant between God and Israel, because this was, after all, only an outward sign. What mattered to God was that ongoing work of devotion that happens in the heart. It's that which we spoke of earlier, that patient and time-consuming work of worship, prayer, devotion and spiritual discipline. The work that is done in quiet where no one but God sees. For us, our circumcision, says Paul, is not the kind performed by human hands. It is in Christ. And our baptism is the outward sign of this new covenant between us as the new believer in God. But even this is only an outward sign. What matters to God is that ongoing work of devotion that happens in the heart. It's the hours spent studying God's word, seeking him in prayer, worshipping him with our whole lives. It's that work done in quiet where no one else but God sees. It's the ploughing up, the removing of rocks and thorns, the preparation of the heart that enables roots to go down deep and for us to be built up in Christ. It was this and only this that Paul knew would enable us to stand firm against the hollow and deceptive philosophies that were so prevalent in the Colossian society and are still so prevalent in our world today. Good, well-prepared soil enables plants to go down and grow strong, healthy roots which will nourish, which will anchor the plant throughout its lifetime and which will enable it to grow and branch out to increase its influence and to be productive. And isn't that just what we desire here at Pathway? For us to grow, to branch out, to increase our influence in the community and to be productive for the kingdom of God. And so this morning we learn from our far farmers this is a patient and time-consuming work. It is an ongoing work for which there are no shortcuts. Do it poorly and the result will be a hardening of the heart towards the things of God, an influx of thorns and weeds, those things of the world that corrupt and a complete lack of productivity in the kingdom.
do it well, sink your roots into Christ, be built up in him, and there'll be an abundant and ongoing harvest for the kingdom. Good soil doesn't just happen by itself. It takes effort. The question is, are we prepared to make that effort? I'll hand back to Jeff. Thank you, Jeff.